So let me preface this by saying I've been working on a personal project lately since I've been like taking a little break from working and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I've been trying to do better with my commit messages and make them somehow understandable because potentially I would like to make this like an open source project with other people that other people can contribute to. So that means that my commit messages have to be semi good. So it got me thinking about how do you create like a good commit message in the first place? All right, everybody, listen up. I got a good one for you. Gatsby is the fastest front end for the headless web. If your goal is building highly performant, content-rich websites, you need to build with Gatsby. Go to gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow to launch your first Gatsby site in minutes and experience the speed. Go on over, support the show. That's gatsby.dev slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Apologies for the poor audio quality today, but I am joined, as I often am, by my wonderful crew of co-hosts, Ryan, Cassidy, and Siora. Hi, y'all. Hi. Hey. So let's start off maybe by acknowledging the elephant in the room. Crypto is having a bit of a week. <laughs> a lot of cool people that I know in my universe went to work at crypto and Web3 companies, and I hope that they weather the storm and make something that people find useful. I don't want to uh, admit to the schadenfreude, but <laughs> hard to look away when things are going this crazy. So wait, what exactly is happening? Because I'm not really, I didn't get to read through this news article. But Just ahead of time. everything is down, basically. Uh. Just all, all the things are down and, and people are nervous. But then in some circles, it's a lot of people being like, if you have the cash, now is the time to buy. So... <laughs> The fire is warm. <laughs> Throw your money on it. I guess it depends on how you're looking at it. I mean, if you want to be glass half full, then maybe it's like, this is the perfect time to get in on it. I don't right. know. Yeah, they always say, buy the dip. Buy the dip. Is there a cause to this? I've heard also that like, just generally with stock market stuff, everything is pretty low. Like, Not everything, but a lot of things are low right Many now. Many things, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is this like kind of in tandem with that or is there another cause to that, to this, this? It's drop? definitely part of it is like the macro picture of like people are nervous about the economy and inflation and Russia. So like, or, and China's economy, like people are nervous. So then, and also we had a great year after you have a great year, people like to sell their shares and take their profits. And then after you have a great year, you have a not so great year. But I would say the thing that crypto people had always said in the past was, we're not the stock market. We're different. Buy crypto, not stocks. Invest in this, not that. And now they're all just moving in this, like they're in lockstep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I think the uh, the Coinbase news that you posted might might get people freaked out. That uh, Coinbase announced that you don't actually own own the the coins that they hold for you. So if they go into bankruptcy, you could potentially lose everything. Wait, if Coinbase goes into bankruptcy, yeah. Coinbase, uh, for for the record, is not in danger of going into bankruptcy, but but right, right. And again, as Cassidy has pointed out before, it's like about reinventing the wheel. It's like, wasn't this the problem it was supposed to solve? Was that like everybody right. their like own that's stuff the whole and the decentralized network? And then it was yeah. like, but I don't, I can't make a good mobile app. Coinbase, can you make a good mobile app? Okay, you're in charge now. Here's all right. my crypto. <laughs> Right. And that's exactly it. it the, that being a problem means that it's centralized, which is mm -hmm. not decentralized, right. which is the whole 
antithesis of crypto things and uh, yeah exactly we've we've talked about this so many times (laughs) i'm honestly very sad that this is happening though like i hope and i'm sure this isn't true but i hope not too many people are losing a ton of money like Mm -hmm. i know a lot of people have used this as their primary form of investment and that makes me nervous that some people are losing out on a lot of money that could be life-changing in a negative kind of way and that Mm -hmm. makes me scared I don't like that too much. A friend of mine jokingly tweeted, she said, I'm not buying low right now because all of my money is already in crypto. Therefore, I have no more money to buy low with. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think this is is sort of a symptom of crypto being a newer financial product because they don't have a way to uh, have sub accounts, right? I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. But it seems like the way they had to do it was uh, put it in a wallet. Right, if a single entity is buying this crypto coin, right, they have to control the wallet. Yeah, yeah. I also think you know there was a lot of hype around it, and a lot of like enthusiasm, and now you know there's a bit of like a comeuppance of just like, is this fifteenth new coin that I got actually also <laughs> going to be the one? You know, is this like seventeenth NFT that I minted like from an artist right. who will be important in a hundred years? And it's like I hope you know again. I'm not like trying to wish ill on anybody. I'm not trying to take pleasure in this, but um, we did talk a lot in the way up here about whether this was hype or substance and how much of it would and Mm -hmm. how some it's washing out. And we have to talk about it because so many people in this profession of software engineering and, you know, Mm -hmm. developer relations and people I know working in marketing have gone to these companies, you know, the amount of entry that I think, you know, we can't not talk about its impact on the industry. Yeah, yeah. I hope I really hope the blowout isn't too big. I hope that the impact isn't too big and too negative because I know quite a few people who have not only like invested a lot in crypto, but like you mentioned, going to work at these right. different They've invested their time know. and career, not just Yeah. In yeah, and that could be that could be terrible. I would I would hate for this to to go really really badly. I mean, we we had an episode as well where we talked about like the great migration of a bunch of tech workers across different like professions and disciplines moving to crypto companies Mm -hmm. so i just or web3 companies so i just hope that i hope that we can weather this storm (laughs) and come out of this in one piece (laughs) well it's it's the hot new technology and hot new technologies don't always pan out yeah right there's um there's a podcast that i listened to recently i don't know if any of you have heard of one coin The podcast was called The Missing Crypto Queen. Highly recommend checking out. It's a short form Mm. podcast that the BBC produced. I think it's like eight episodes, 10 episodes, and that's it. Um, And it it came out, I think, a little bit before the pandemic. But it basically follows this company that tried to be a crypto company and like take on Bitcoin and change crypto forever, basically. And then the more people dug into it, and even though thousands and thousands and thousands of people were were investing in it it ended up being a scam and it was a mm. fascinating it was a fascinating look into the research of how uh, of how it like hit its heyday and then started to go downhill and up again and down again and and it, it talked about like the psychology of investing in it and also just the technology behind it too and i highly recommend checking it out i just finished listening to that one Sweet. I guess the other thing that came out and sort of this washout you're talking about, like scam or not scam, real or not real, was the end of one of the most 
or you know, perhaps the end of one of the most popular stable coins, Terra, mm -hmm. which is you know the whole idea there is like we built this algorithm, we have the smarts, the software, the math. One Terra will always be worth one dollar, and now you know they're just like rapidly falling away from one another. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, you know, just to see yeah if that can hold. Like it, it's to see how robust the system is. I mean, one of the things that somebody said to me recently that I thought was really like really clarify my thinking was like, imagine the internet in 1996, you dial up, you can't get through, you get a busy signal. It's too slow to be worthwhile. It's too expensive. It's glitchy. Like, okay, this is the, you know, this is web 3.0 is like the internet in 1996. And I actually went and looked it up. The dot-com bus wiped out something like $5 trillion worth of stock market values. It's like, sure. We've seen this kind of build up and blow up before. I'm not even sure mm -hmm. crypto has blown up as much money as .com, yeah. you know, did um, adjusted for the time. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, I remember. I think I discovered. <laughs> I think I discovered what the dot the dot .com bubble was a little while mm -hmm. ago while I was like researching what crypto was. Mm. And like you said, I think it's just a natural progression for most newer technologies. Is like at first it's super interesting. Everyone wants to get in on it, and then it goes through some turbulence and only the strongest few come out of the other right. side. Mm -hmm. Even like with, uh, for a while, like machine learning and AI were huge and every company wanted to like, there were companies starting out that their whole thing was supposed to be machine learning and AI. And like how many of those have lasted up till now? Sure. So it's just a natural progression. I just, I just hate to see people, get messed up in the process just like what happened with the dot-com bubble there were tons of people yeah. who didn't make it through that you know or who made it through but barely so i mean that's that's the nature of risk though that's if you're yeah. betting on something new like you know the folks who invested in pets.com you know probably lost their shirt but amazon.com came out around the same time and they have many shirts now right shirts for sale <laughs> Um, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I, one interesting thing, Ciara, to your point is that, you know, I, I remember talking with Paul and Sarah and other folks who got laid off during the dot-com bust. It was not easy then for a software developer to turn around and find another job. Like jobs kind of dried up for a few years there. That's not the case now, thankfully. Like people might, yeah. you know, get laid off, but luckily there are still many other companies and other areas of software technology or just Every industry now needs developers of some kind that you could, you know, hopefully find a good, find a place to land on your feet. So we have more hope this time around. We have a little more hope. Siri, you want to bring us your topic, aka your project, aka let's help you out. <laughs> sure. So let me preface this by saying I've been working on a personal project lately since I've been like taking a little break from working and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I've been trying to do better with my commit messages and make them somehow understandable because potentially I would like to make this like an open source project with other people that other people can contribute to. So that means that my commit messages have to be semi good. So it got me thinking about how do you create like a good commit message in the first place? Um, and I came across this article, it's called Zen in the art of writing good commit messages. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty short. Um, and kind of goes over like it's principles that I knew of, <laughs> but like, wasn't really following I'll just explain usually what happens to me when I'm working on my project I'll like do a bunch of stuff and then remember like oh I forgot to commit and then I'll try to do a commit and then like it'll be something stupid like I just 
built this feature and <laughs> like <laughs> push that to GitHub thing. when honestly, yeah, <laughs> honestly, it's better to do short, like do commits frequently that kind of explain what's going on so that people like potentially who want to also contribute or whatever, or even like your teammates who are working on the same thing as you can have an idea of what's going on. So I just wanted to hear, we have some developers in the room now. So I wanted to hear like, if you have any tips or tricks when you're like doing Git commit messages or like even just basic like project maintenance when it comes to like your project and maintaining it on Git and GitHub and stuff. Give me the tips. I need them desperately. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, I do the exact same thing where sometimes on personal projects, I go in deep. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, no, I haven't committed in a long time. Uh, And so I will say whenever that happens, I at least try to break up the files where I'll say like updated, updated the CSS to get to this point, updated the these components specifically and at least break up the files. So it's Still probably not best practice because you want to get like a timestamp over time rather than just like this file was really hardcore updated and, <laughs> and that was it. But that's that's typically what I do. Um, and honestly, I do occasionally just set a timer where if the timer goes off when I'm like deep in a coding session, it, I'll be just like, oh, actually, should I commit right now or do mm-hmm. I want to finish X, Y or Z just to keep that in my mind? Because it is such a good practice to do that, especially if you break yeah. something, because if you break yeah. something and then you mm-hmm. can't figure out how to go back and it's been so long since you've committed something, that is just a headache this waiting to happen. But I did yeah. set a timer, yeah, to save my game on especially hard ones, so I wouldn't get far <laughs> and then not have saved and I had to go all the way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we uh, we published something recently uh, from this guy Mark Seaman who talked about um, using commits as save points. You know, committing using Git tactically to you know, do the sort of smallest possible code change um, and then saving and then saving and saving. And you have this full record of of working code along the way. Right. It's kind of like if you are playing a game and you're, you know, a final boss is coming at some point, you save <laughs> like along the way because you're just like, I've survived this long and you keep going. It, it's It's a very similar concept, I think. And then also in terms of just Git management and just your your repository management and stuff. First of all, we talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode that I did with Matt. We're just talking about open source in general. First of all, you should make it public before you think you should. People, mm-hmm. chances are, aren't going to be skimming through your code. As I see, Sierra's making a face on that. But you should just <laughs> make it public. It's okay. But also... As you work on features, treat it as if you are maintaining a public project anyway. And so when I have my own projects, for example, something that is something that I need to get better at, but what you can do is for every feature that you want to do, everything you want to make, just create issues for yourself. Because then every time you want to finish something or or get certain components or pages or, or aspects of your um, application done, if it's tied to an issue, that kind of reminds you to commit as well. Because then every time you make a little bit of progress, you're like, oh, I can check that off. And, and it's kind of like checking something off of your to-do list, but it's an actual issue where there's a record attached to it. And that way you can also make notes for yourself as well. Because sometimes, especially on your own personal products, you might just have a ton of to-dos and comments in your code. Mm-hmm. It's very common. <laughs> See <right> in your face. <laughs> I love how expressive you are. <laughs> but if you if you put it in an issue, then that's where those kinds of notes can live. So that way your code your code stays clean. 
Yeah. And, and as somebody who's written documentation, I have absolutely gone through issues and PR comments to try to figure out what, you know, a checkbox does. So you're creating a historical record that archivists of the future will, <laughs> will dig through and try to figure out how this works. Yeah. That's a good tip. I just, um, I had actually tweeted something where I was like, can someone like help me to remember to like commit often? Um, and someone suggested, I'm going to like read this, this, this comment like verbatim because I don't want to mess any of the terminology <laughs> up, but they said like, as part of your build pipeline setup, um, you can like include tests and they only pass locally when, wait, what did he say? As you build, add more tests as they pass locally, you will soon want to see them run past as part of your commit or the build pipeline. Mm. I don't know what that means, but it seems like a good way. To like You're raising your hand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to talk about this. Okay. Yeah, so, please do. Like Test-driven development is so fun. And it's something that I think is much easier to do for back-end development than front-end, but it's still something that's, that's awesome where... Um, something that I've done, especially when back in the dark days where, where I was a backend <laughs> developer, is I would write all of the tests that I wanted to pass before I actually built the features. And so, um, for example, way back in the day when I was working at Venmo, I was part of the team that implemented blocking in Venmo, where you could block someone um, on the account. And so we would write all these tests like, okay, does this person appear in in someone's feed when you've blocked them? Are they able to make a payment? Are they able to uh, make a, a charge request or, or various different things? And at first, all of those tests failed because blocking wasn't implemented. But as we slowly implemented the feature, those tests started to turn green over time. And then you could make a commit message every single time a test turns green. And you can do similar things with front-end development, it's just a bit harder because it tends to be visual um, and uh, where you would probably want to have unit tests more than integration tests for it. But it's a great way to, once again, have kind of those check marks where you every time something passes or changes, you can push it and have it committed. You know what? I've been thinking I've been thinking a lot about test-driven development. Actually, I've heard a lot of people mention it and talk about it and stuff. And you know, like, as the resident junior developer who represents all junior developers on this podcast, <laughs> it seems like the normal progression as a developer is to be like, you know what, I should probably actually dedicate some time to learning more about test-driven development. And mm -hmm. I actually had um, an interview recently where I was like doing the code or whatever in front of somebody else, which was really nerve wracking. And then the interviewer kind of asked me like, okay, like what are some use cases you should like test for it to see if this code will work mm. up against? Mm -hmm. um, and it just got me thinking like, that's probably the normal thing to do when you're like coding. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's to like think about like, okay, what could break this code? Like what are some of the things, especially if you're building something that users are gonna like interact with, right? If you have like a some like an open source project or an actual like you're actually contributing to code for like a product that people have to like use. Um, it's probably important that you think about like how could someone break this and ruin my day so that I have to like yeah, I mean, it's, fix this. It's also probably good to just think about how your users are going to use it. I think yeah, there may they be will people be wrong at some point. Yeah, oh, they, they'll do some dumb stuff. Yeah, yeah, and like of course I think it's intuitive because I built the thing. Like right. of course right. it's going to make sense to me. But um, I'm 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 actually am working on something that hopefully 
I don't know. Hopefully, it'll become something that people actually use. We'll see. But like, <laughs> as I was coding it and stuff, I'm like, ah, uh, you know what? The people who are using this probably aren't going to be super technical and like think the way that I do or that other mm-hmm. developers do. What are some of the ways that they're going to like use this and it be not what I think would be the right way to use this? And how can I like kind of build for those use cases? I don't know. And it feels like test-driven development is kind of like thinking along those lines. I wouldn't know, though. I've never done test-driven development. So you tell me. (laughs) So there is there's something that I did ages ago, uh, like truly like a decade ago, I went to this workshop for understanding the concept of test-driven development. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they said, okay, by the end of this, we're going to write a function that just returns Fibonacci numbers. And and they were just like, but we don't want you to write this at all. Let's write what we expect first. And so it wasn't proper testing or anything, but it was just saying, okay, if let's just say the function's called Fibonacci. If you do Fibonacci zero, you just, you want zero elements to be returned what should be returned? Nothing. Okay. What about Fibonacci one? What what do you expect to be returned? And we would write a few different functions of what we would expect the, our, our Fibonacci function to do. And then we would start to build our Fibonacci function later to specifically return those values just for the individual test cases. So don't over-optimize at all where we just solved the first one first, where it returns nothing. So we did like, if there's nothing in here. If it just is a zero, we return nothing. Okay. If it wants one, we want this. And then over time, if you want to keep having the earlier tests pass, you have to start to optimize your code a little bit more. And it was a really good exercise. And there's this one game that I want to share called Elevator Saga, where this was very viral back in the day. I I, <laughs> I, I know it still exists, but if you go to uh, play.elevatorsaga.com, what it is, is basically a tester for that kind of test-driven development in a way where where you just solve base cases first and it gets more complicated. So the first thing is just transport 15 people in an elevator in 60 seconds or less. And there's like a little JavaScript API where you're just like, okay, I just want to go to floors zero, one, and two. And you can just make the elevator go up and down and that's fine. But then it gets more complex. You might have multiple cars and you can kind of optimize your code over time. And it's a really good exercise in this way of thinking. And I highly recommend playing it. I should try that out. (laughs) I definitely need it. (laughs) I have a question for Cassidy and Ryan. So like we were comparing it to doing a save game. One of the things that kind of irks me when I'm doing a save is once I have too many, then I can get lost. Like, I don't know where I wanted to start again. And my naming conventions aren't good. You know, I, I kind of forget, like, why did I call it this again? You know, and I feel like it's kind of the same with, you know, when you're leaving notes for yourself. So like, how do you, is there a balance that you want to strike there of not over annotating? You know, like Ryan, you were saying, it's great when I have this historical archive, maybe for a technical writer it is, but Cassidy or CR from the point of like going in and looking at a code base, do you ever get overwhelmed by someone who's just like, you know, left a million annotations. I don't think I've come across that before, honestly. Uh, Cassie, you probably have more experience with this kind of thing, but... (laughs) (laughs) Something that's particularly useful that I've seen a lot of teams do, and like my my company does that right now too, is they basically do squash commits, where whenever you are about to work on a big feature, let's just say we're, we're making the elevator component or whatever, for this pull request, we're going to 
push all of our commits specifically to this branch where it's saying like, okay, we're creating an elevator car. Now there's two elevator cars. We're making it pass these tests, these tests. You do all of your commits, whether they're spammy or not, into this one branch. But then when you want to actually merge it into the main like trunk of, of the entire repository, you do what's called a squash commit, where it just squishes all of your commits together into one mega commit into the repository. And so if you ever want to see all of the granular stuff, you can go to that branch, you could go to that PR and see what the individual steps were. But in like your main history, it's just the features that are in the commit history. Yeah, I've I've seen that too, where it's it just one PR per uh, Jira issue, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're kind of you're you're bundling them, and then there's a little index you can expand if you want to dive deeper. Right. Exactly. Because sometimes you do have just a stupid commit where it's just like oh, I forgot a semicolon or this little space right here. You don't need that in your big mega project <laughs> of, of commits. Yeah. So that's where squish commits can be handled uh, handy. Have you ever come across like a code base that's like overly commented? <laughs> I feel like most of the time I see code that doesn't have enough comments that explain what's going on. Um, but I, one thing for me is that like, I always try to make sure for the main branch that like the comments probably don't need to be there, I guess I should say. Cause that's supposed to be like the code that like, no, not they don't need to be there, but like the comments that are like, I don't know what's going on here. I need to fix this later. Like that doesn't need to be on the main branch, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Have you ever cro- come across anything where you're like, uh, maybe you should clean up the comments here a little bit more. I have particularly with students or, or folks on internships, which I don't I don't want to blame them for it. It's, it's a good thing to know what you're doing. But sometimes the comments are just really yeah. granular where it's just like, this is an if statement that checks if this variable is true. I can see that in the code. I don't necessarily need that to be commented. And I understand because they're trying to learn best practices and I have been that student yeah. doing that. But I think over time, you start to realize, okay, these are the kinds of things that need to be commented. Something that's not immediately obvious, something where it's like, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I'm, I'm leaving a note for anybody who tries to refactor it later, that that kind of stuff. I, I've seen that, and I think those comments are good. Um, it's when it's commenting like very granularly, basically the pseudocode of what the next line is doing is when it's a little over the top. That's so funny. Okay, good to know. I'll keep that in mind while I'm working on my project. (laughs) As we uh, often do, we shout out a lifeboat badge. Uh, Today's lifeboat goes to Nina Schultz for their answer to what's the difference between object.entries and object.keys? So if you're interested, we'll drop that in the show notes and uh, you can check it out. That's a great question too. That's an actual interview question I've had. Before. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> We're here to help you uh, progress in your career by dropping <laughs> interview questions in. Um, hi everybody. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. Apologies again for my audio. And you can always find me uh, at Ben Popper on Twitter. You can always email us, podcast at Stack Overflow. We'll shout you out. And yeah, if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. And I am getting my first 3D printer. It's on the way. Ooh. So I went I went ahead and bit the bullet. Um, let me see if I can find which one it is. It's called the Creality in Ender 3 Pro. So it's kind of an entry-level model. That's a nice one, though. Five stars. It wasn't very expensive. Um, so I can try it out and see if I like it. 
Cool. That's exciting. I'm Ryan Donovan. Uh, I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at uh, rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, you can email us at pitches at stackoverflow.com. And uh, I have a a rec. I like language learning. And uh, my favorite language learning app is this one called LingQ, or maybe it's just Link, L-I-N-G-Q.com. It does uh, full full text, and you can highlight words and create, you know, uh, little flashcards from them, and then test yourself on them. It's very good. Oh, and cool! I have to check that yeah. out. Awesome. Well, my name is Sierra Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Nowhere. <laughs> I love saying that so much. <laughs> Um, but if you're interested in hearing more from me, you can find me on Twitter. I spend the most time there online. And my username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I don't have a tech rec this time, so I'm just going to pass it on to Cassidy. Hello, everybody. I'm Cassidy. My tech rec for the week is Elevator Saga. It is an older game, but it still teaches you so much. I don't think I've ever gotten past level seven, so try to beat me you can find me at cassidoo c-a-s-s-i-d-o-o on most things wonderful and yes shout out to jj ashgar a developer advocate over at the ibm cloud team who broke 500 rep on stack Ooh. overflow and wanted to let us know JJ, thank wow. you for contributing to the community appreciate it all right everybody thanks for listening and we will talk to you soon